0: Hello, thank you for joining us for this conversation with Lucia Luna Victoria Indacochea on the internal armed conflict in Peru between 1980 to 2000. We're going to discuss the context of the Peruvian armed conflict, her dissertation research related to the topic, and her methodology. So, Thank you for participating Lucia. Can you introduce yourself for our audience?
1: Yeah, um, thank you Jordan for inviting me. Uh, I am a PhD candidate um, in Latin American history at UC Davis and with a designated emphasis on human rights. Um, and I am also a Mellon ACLS dissertation fellow um, for the 2021-2022 year.
0: Excellent. So can you tell us about your research?
1: Yeah. Um, so I, Really focus on the the twenty year period of the armed conflict in Peru. Um, it was a um, a popular war. Um, some might say started in the rural um, Andean region of Ayacucho, in the in actually in the University of Huamanga, um, by a philosophy professor. But it's this Maoist. Um, branch of the communist party who declared war on the Peruvian state and embarked on this really violent um, kind of crusade. Uh, And it was met with a lot of repression from the state in the 20 year period with a different, um, and it was actually a period of democracy. So we had um, a lot of leftist, Uh, groups trying to deal with this branch of of Maoism, Um, and later we have the government of Fujimori, Um, that's a bit more, uh, it it worked more with with the armed forces. So what my project looks at um, in this kind of big context is the urban element. so a lot of the studies that have been done have been on the countryside. Um, the Most of the deaths that occurred in this period were of, um, what, the victims were peasants, um, Quechua speakers. Um, so a lot of the scholarship has been on, on those, um, the Southern Andes region. And I've decided to kind of focus on the capital um, Lima and the of uh peripheral shantytowns um where that received a lot of the refugees from from the in from the from the countryside at this moment um, specifically um one shantytown that was created uh, by the the legal left socialist the socialist mayor of lima alfonso barrantes um And primarily, um, you know, my my questions have been how you know did these people how did the the socialist left um, confront the shining path? Um, What alternatives were were possible in the nineteen eighties Peru? This return to democracy. what alternatives were there besides um, complete war, uh, armed struggle, and um, the previous sort of right wing um, order. So there is this democratization. Um, you know the in the return to democracy, the right to vote is given to um, people who didn't have it before, which was majority of the Ketchup-speakers uh, Indian ancestry individuals um, who were illiterate. Um, so that is kind of giving a whole uh, electoral power to a, a new demographic that really shapes the 1980s in Peru. Um, and, and then is confronted with armed conflict um, that starts to target uh, these leaders that emerge from the left um, in the 1980s. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's about that transition to democracy, it's about the trajectory of the left, but it's also about the grassroots um, efforts from people who were affiliated with politics or not but just to um in, in the case of the city to have the right to housing and basic services water food medicine um, especially as we if we think more um regionally or world globally even like the economic crisis of the late 80s um when these problems are just heightened um, and, and it comes with disease and all these other uh, kind of uh, issues with the urban um, context as well. So it's about the struggles on the ground, um, the everyday struggle to survive in addition to an armed conflict and straight repression um, from the armed forces, uh, police, etc. cetera. Um,
0: Great. So, what are your? I know I appreciate that you're still working on this project, but what are your major conclusions so far?
1: Yeah, um, some conclusions are that there there were a lot of alternatives. Um, I mainly work with um, this grassroots leaders, um, and they negotiated. I mean, there is this negotiation with the state uh, and not just um, the president or military, but with uh, municipalities to make some gains, for example, to bring um, solutions to everyday problems um, that might've been um, feeding the support for the armed rebels. Um, right so if there is poverty, if there is hunger uh, people are dissatisfied they're more likely to join the armed struggle and not wait for this uh, as the left wanted to do this the legal left um, this kind of slow um, democratic uh, kind of gradual change um, so, It was by making these negotiations, um, I'm finding, um, learn about the negotiations, learn about the uh, even collaborations, creating um, sort of support for the counterinsurgency measures in exchange for public works or um, allowing for grassroots leaders to remain in control of their communities um, and not necessarily be under um, kind of state control or just to have those kind of certain independence, self-management is really um, the community that I look at, Waikan, is like a self-managed urban community. Um, they elect their representatives, they create and find funding for their projects um, and have this idea of serving their community. Um, And that kind of contrasts with what was going on at that time, either sometimes the military would come in and kind of just um, dissolve the organization that was already existing, change the leaders, persecute leaders, um, or the shining path that would also um, attack and accuse of corruption the current leaders um, and kind of impose their own order. So it was really about letting these communities govern themselves um, with this negotiation um, and agreements with the state.
0: Okay, so 1980 to 2000 is a very recent history and that comes with a, a bunch of challenges such as sources, uh, literature, and even just the way it's perceived within the history department. I was wondering for you, like, what have the challenges been and how did you approach those challenges of doing this very modern history?
1: Yeah, um, that's a great question, I think. Um, and I've had to convince people, you know, on in Peru, that this is history and not uh, journalism um, in that sense. But um, yeah, well, one challenge has been archival, uh, especially the urban side, just because a lot of the um, municipalities or um, kind of these organizations that deal with urban housing have been done and redone and uh, reconceptualized and it's just, it's, it's been hard to track down certain, um, documents. I've gone on, um, several, of uh, rabbit holes that sometimes led to nowhere. <laughs> People were just like, we don't have this information here. Um, but with that said, um, another, Challenge that kind of solves that is this idea of private archives as well. People these people are still alive. These people have their documents, um, copies of documents. Um, so that's that's definitely been there. Um, uh, and this kind of yeah, sometimes you learn about it sometimes through just the oral histories, um, doing the the interviews, um, and with. Yeah, bringing up the oral, the oral interviews, the challenge of memory, um, the challenge of you know what people remember of um, that. You definitely get you know dates that are different um, events that get kind of uh, associated with um, events that happen years after that um, that aren't necessarily. You know, there's no timeline for it, but that's that's the great part about doing memory as well that comes with doing recent history. Um, um, you know, I plan to use uh my one of my chapters is gonna be on memory and how um these leaders leaders um think about and interpret um their fights and, and their struggles um, in in sins. You know, since the beginning of of the armed conflict and the creation of their of their community, um, so those are definitely the challenges. Is is finding some of the the archives um, that have been changing, um, and you know, the congressional archives and things like that. They they stop in the seventies or so sometimes. Um, so it is about tracking down the officials. I've tracked down municipal, like, um, municipal officials um, who had a better, they were the source, they were, they had a better idea of what the documents were um, and just tracking down the people themselves. Um, With that said though, my main archive is the Truth Commission archive, right? So it's, they have, um, this entire so much information on on this period on the conflict testimonies audio written, um, so that's been a, a great place to start definitely.
0: The yeah I mean I was the next question I was going to ask you was on sources you've already you know start touching on it there but um, I was wondering what kind of what were the main sources you're getting out of this archive and how are you fitting them into your thesis.
1: Yeah. um, From the Truth and Reconciliation Commission Archive, um, main sources have been the testimonies. Um, They have some that are open to the public, Um, some they were requested to be private and they're sealed, so I I cannot have access to those. Um, But they do have all, even field notes of the people who were doing who were in charge of doing uh, work in the certain communities, right? Um, so what I did first was contact a historian um, Eduardo Toche. He worked on the community that I chose, Huaycan, and another one, Raucana. Um, so he also gave me his separate notes. Um, but in the archive, they have um, the audios. Some are transcribed, some are, some are not. Um, they have uh, photographs, they have um, also uh, kind of surveys of you know the violence in the region. They have data, um, kind of uh, graphs, and just like uh, kind of quantitative information as well. So all of those things are are kind of complement um, the interviews that I've done. They complement um, in trying to understand the larger context of the armed conflict, right? If I'm just looking in the city, but it really helps put into context if I can just read about the Amazon or um, Ayacucho specifically, and how does that relate? So it's a great source um, to always go back to. Like I always have that tab open on my computer.
0: Excellent. It sounds like you're using. Uh and a eclectic range of sources are and i wanted to dive into the oral history side of this so uh how did you use oral history and is in the one the oral history that you conducted yourself and what were the benefits of it and what were the difficulties of of using this method
1: yeah um so i i conducted interviews um and it was Pretty, pretty interesting. I kind of, just to get started and you have to um, kind of cast a very wide net, I think. I, The first thing I did really was contact um, individuals who had done research in WACON field work, ethnographic work, um, anthropologists, sociologists um, just to get some idea of what it was like. Um, and then once I, had contacts of leaders in Waikan. Um, I would sit down with them, and the first would be very informal in the sense of, you know, um, tell me about your community, your role um, in the community. And it was about this. Then I would do follow up interviews with questions after listening back and just um, trying to get the sense for the organization of the community um what were the kind of the difficulties and the experiences not just um leaving it too open um especially in the second interview i would come back um kind of pushing it a little bit after establishing some trust in that first interview um trying to clear up certain things about violence i mean this is very recent history. It's history about um, terrorism. It's about um, and it's to people who have experienced physical violence or who have been threatened, whose lives have been really affected. So it's it's also about um, you know not making anyone uncomfortable, uh, kind of establishing that trust and and respecting. Um, their, their boundaries as well. Um, And this is something that um, you know, it's also hard about writing about it later. Um, You know, you ask how I use this, this oral histories. um, And because you start to hear a lot of rumors um, and and things like that from from this interviews as well. Um, So it's about It's never about accusing anyone. It's never about establishing who was involved in um, The Shining Path or the other movement, the Tupac Amaru revolutionary movement, or who worked with the military um, and snitched and things like that. It's, it's about um, portraying what it was like, I suppose, what it was like, what was at stake for this individuals. Um, and And afterwards, I think in the memory chapter, um, thinking about how the repercussions of that, um, repercussions of of working with the state or of of maintaining um, your ideals, even though you were persecuted for them. Um, So yeah, I think oral histories there's, you always get one side of the story, so it's always good to, you know, just try and talk to as many different people as you can, and and try and paint, um, not a total history, right? It's not about a total history, but it's this is what was happening to this individuals, um, and and having a sense for for that period, um, in Peru that at this moment is very polarized. If either you were um a terrorist or sympathized with terrorism or you were um against them um and that was not the case for many
0: yeah i think on this idea of trying to write a, a total history would be almost impossible when we're restricted by you know 120 000 words or so for uh book publications or whatever it's you know whatever your contract says um, and time, the big one. <laughs> um, so, I want to jump from looking at the primary sources to looking at more um, kind of secondary work. So, you, you're engaging with a lot of different themes, so like urbanism, uh, human rights and violence, um, among many others of you know neoliberalism, late twentieth century Latin America. So, I was just wondering how you balance that those multiple literatures, and how did it Inform your project.
1: Yeah, um, it's definitely. I kind of started just looking at the urban side, um, looking at kind of the demographic growth and through how that relates, um, and I do. Um, Try to balance like one one chapter is the creation of, of Waikan. It's created in 1984, and it's created as a solution to this spontaneous kind of land invasions, um, and and that's kind of where I found kind of an opening for me to discuss you know why this is this is created in that sense, um, and then having you know the chance to talk about. Um, in, in later chapters, when the violence reaches the city, in um, And that's where that literature about um, the Shining Path, um, the Maoist guerrilla, kind of comes in, um, simultaneous with the kind of economic recession and, and this literature on on the 1980s, right, um, on this decade, that for many was a chance to explore a lot of alternatives um, before kind of this uh, neoliberal model. Um, so I, I do kind of divide up my dissertation into kind of chronologically and just use the last few chapters to kind of do more comparative studies or more thematic. Um, but chronologically, that's when I kind of enter this idea of the urban problem, um, and then the violence, um, and then um, memory at the end. Those are the key historiographies. I think I, I touch um, with human rights as well.
0: And uh, why did you choose this specific urban uh, housing community? What was your motivation for that for that specific place?
1: Yeah, I yeah, it's about my my, I think my second year that I, I really narrowed it down. Um I chose Waikan one because it was created during the armed conflict, right? It's created in nineteen eighty-four. Um 1984 is also, you know, when the most uh most of the refugees start to come to Lima um after the, the military kind of creates emergency zones. In the countryside. Um, and the other big um, kind of driver for me choosing Huaycan is that it was a socialist project. Um, the first socialist mayor in any Latin American, like major Latin American city, is elected um, in Lima in 1983, Alfonso Barrantes, and he makes Huaycan a special project of his um, tenure as mayor. Um, and that kind of gives Waikan as a community leverage um, in the in the 80s, mostly um, you know, being this leftist project that is backed by the state by the municipality. Um, in comparison to other kind of spontaneous um, communities that were created as well, um, they. They had support from congressmen, they had support from um, senators, um, and they had um, you know, it was created as an alternative plan, socialist alternative plan, urban plan. Um, They had um, studies on the ground, they had um, housing plans, even for building their own lots, which they had to build themselves. Um, But they had the specific lot sizes and plans that they all adhered to. And all of the residents agreed to uh, do it this way, um, to keep it orderly, to understanding that um, if they all agreed, they could make it work Um, and I mean, that's later challenged as things get harder, there's more people than there should be. Um, opposing parties are also in there. Um, but the initial idea was very uh, utopic in a sense, very. Um, and they, they, I mean, that's that's uh, a part of their identity that's still on today, right? That um, That sense of community from the very beginning.
0: that brings me very well onto the the final question which is you know from the present day in 2021 why does this history matter
1: yeah um well in in the context of peru you know um to learn about waikan to learn about you know its leaders it matters It matters because they had possibilities and they kind of preserved uh, certain ideals that were threatened um, or almost repressed from an entire generation of political activists, of community organizers um, with through the armed conflict, right? This polarization of good and bad um, really eroded this community organization um, that was taking shape even before white Man as well, um, the first uh, district that's really the El Salvador, where it happens in, in Lima, but it's kind of a return to that um, kind of collective struggle, collective fight, um, that this communities had and that this individual's had um, and upholding that. I think that's one of the key things, um, thinking about it as the options that the country had um, as opposed to armed struggle, as opposed to neoliberalism. Um, and especially now with the new president, <laughs> um, Pedro Castillo, who is a leftist who has been um, attacked and you know it's it's, it's turning a bit more um, from this rigid um, left to a more progressive left um, you know it's I think it, it just gives kind of this idea of possibility this idea of um of change that is not um, the status quo necessarily. Um, more broadly, I think, learn about Waikan is is learning about this experience of kind of grassroots, a grassroots fight for, for human rights um, at a time that it was faced, these people were faced with kind of very extreme violence um but learn about the ways that they negotiated and collaborated. Um, Yeah, so I think those are kind of some of the takeaways in thinking about um the significance of Waikan and its leaders today.
0: Um, Great. Um, So I'm gonna conclude there and I wish you all the best with the finishing off the project. Um, So Thank you very much for agreeing to take part in this podcast and sharing your research with us. We hope it was a valuable experience to reflect on your own work and to communicate it to a public audience. Additionally, we hope that the listeners have benefited from learning about Lucia's research related to Peru's armed conflict. Thank you.